Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of September 3rd, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Since about the end of May, Technology Corner has been a podcast instead of a broadcast. I've heard from a number of people who say they miss the show on the radio on Sunday mornings, and I've wondered myself whether it's a step up, a step down, a shuffle sideways to be podcasting instead of broadcasting. A lot of the messages I've received have been critical of Clear Channel, but as with most things in life, it's not that simple. Clear Channel's primary reason for being, after all, is to make money. And if they feel the Farm Bureau plays better in Columbus's largest city on a Sunday morning, that's up to them. As for podcasting, broadcasters still tend to look down on the medium a bit. I know that I did that. Broadcasters tend to think that podcasters aren't good enough to be on radio. And in some cases, that's undoubtedly true. But then, after all, there are some people on radio who aren't good enough to be on radio. Podcasting, in the final analysis, really is just another way of making information available to the people who want it. What about the audience, though? The ratings show that Technology Corner had about 25,000 listeners. That's what the ratings said. However, I wondered how many of those listeners actually had the radio on just for background chatter as they were getting ready for church, preparing for a drive to grandma's, maybe packing up some fishing gear, or getting ready for a trip to the zoo. Some people listened actively because Joe and I received email messages every week from those people. And Technology Corner, the website, hosted about 150 visitors per day on average. So now that the show is a podcast instead of a broadcast, what's happened? Well, I receive email messages every week from people who listened actively. The website hosts about 150 visitors on average per day, about a 1,000 a week. So the program is still reaching about the same number of active ears and active minds by directly involving perhaps a few hundred podcast listeners and about a thousand website visitors every week. About the same as it did when the program nominally reached about 25,000 people, most of whom clearly weren't really listening. And as I've continued to do the podcast, I've realized that the podcasting offers certain advantages both to me and to the listener. There are no commercials, no program elements aimed at the lowest common denominator share. The creator of the podcast has to work less time to create more content. So really, it's a win for everybody. I mentioned at the top of each show that we cram an hour's worth of technology news into far less than an hour, and I'm not kidding. Here's the math. Back when the show was on the air, we had an hour. From that hour, you deduct seven minutes twice an hour for news top and bottom of the hour. Sports typically ran five to seven minutes, particularly during football season. So five to seven minutes twice an hour. There's another 10 to 14 minutes gone. Weather, about a minute every 10 minutes. Commercials, oh, some days there weren't very many. Could be as low as zero. Some days might be 10 minutes or more. And then you have the various formatic elements, jingles, IDs, bumpers, and all that stuff. So when you do the math, you figure that your hour on the air turns out to be about 15 to 22 minutes. Podcasting means I can create all that content, and you can hear all that content in far less time with no interruptions. In the first few weeks, I had thought about trying to get Technology Corner back on the air somewhere, and I'm sure there would have been a market for it. But as I continue doing the podcast and become more and more aware of the advantages that podcasting offers, 
that desire has receded. There's something magic about a big transmitter that sends your voice out to people all over the state. But there's something equally magic about preparing a podcast that's listened to not only in Ohio, but also in, oh, say, for example, Parker, Colorado, Beaverton, Oregon, Escondido, California, Caracas, Venezuela, Hamilton, Scotland, Chatham, England, Berlin, Warsaw, Prague, Utrecht in the Netherlands, Manila, Tamil Nadu in India, and Canberra, Australia. So welcome to the new world. Radio is changing. Radio is always changing. When NPR unceremoniously fired Bob Edwards from the morning show and assigned him as a senior correspondent, he quit. He moved to XM, one of the two satellite services. His program runs when I can't conveniently listen, but I have an XM radio that includes a recorder. That means I can listen to the Bob Edwards program afternoons when I'm in the gym. NPR makes long-form program components possible, but XM goes even further. Edwards, who's from Kentucky, has presented a long program on strip mining, a program that went far beyond what even NPR would have had time for. XM, Sirius, and podcasts all make it possible for listeners to choose what they want to listen to when they want to listen to it. Terrestrial radio has survived movies and television, and so far, satellite. But I wonder... Is radio in the process of committing suicide? Needless to say, that was purely an opinion. You used to have to say that on broadcast. I don't think you have to do that on a podcast, but I said it anyway. You might be wondering how to make a podcast. It's not a secret society, and it's not even very hard. To create a podcast, you need just three things. A good microphone, a sound editing program that can create an MP3 file, and a reasonably quiet environment. A few other niceties would be helpful, maybe a stand for the microphone and a pop filter for the microphone, but all you really need are those three things. If you're thinking about doing a podcast, let's talk about the microphone. You could, but you don't have to, spend $5,000 for a microphone. You can, and you should, spend more than $5 for one. Start by limiting yourself to a microphone with what's called a cardoid pattern, and you'll do well with a microphone in the $50 to $200 range. There are five primary types of microphones. Omnidirectional, that hears sound from all directions, a bad choice for something like a podcast. Cardoid, hears sound in a relatively tight heart-shaped pattern right in front of the microphone. That is my preference. If there is noise elsewhere in the room, I can point the microphone away from the noise and attenuate most of it. Supercardoid microphones have a tighter pattern than the cardoid in front, but it also picks up a smaller pattern to the back, and they're also typically more expensive. Bidirectional, those pick up sound from the front and the back. They're great if you're doing an interview, otherwise not a good choice. And shotgun microphones. You see these on TV once in a while when the news guys are out there. Strong front pattern with tiny lobes left and right and a small lobe that it picks up in the back. These are handy for isolating sound in a noisy room. They are expensive. They're usually big. And they would be inappropriate for podcasting. So you'll be looking for a cardoid or super cardoid microphone. I was quiet there for a bit. That wasn't a Paul Harvey-type pause. A car drove by. I'm sitting on the second floor of the house. The window is open, and a car drove by. We'll see if that was audible. Next, you want to consider the type of microphone. And there are four primary types you'd be taking a look at. One is a condenser microphone. 
That's the best choice if you can afford it. You will need a power supply for the microphone, although some do allow the use of an internal battery, and some recording equipment actually provides the power through what's called phantom power. I use an AKG C1000S. I think that's a good choice. You can find them for about $150 to $200, probably less these days, because the microphone has been discontinued. It's a particularly good choice because you can convert the pattern between cardoid and supercardoid. Next choice is an Electret microphone. These had a bad reputation because the early models used in consumer devices starting in about the mid-1960s were cheap and sounded cheap. Today's Electret microphone can rival a condenser microphone in sound quality, and typically the price is lower. They need no external power. good example of this, the Shure Beta 87A. It has a super cardoid pattern, less than $200. Dynamic microphones. These are the sturdy ones. You typically find reporters carrying them around. They can be dropped repeatedly with little damage. Audio-Technica's ATM-29HE is available for about $50 from a lot of retailers. Rugged, hypercardoid pattern. This would be a very good choice. If I didn't already have a more expensive microphone, I'd consider that one. And then there are ribbon microphones. These produce some of the best sound quality you can imagine, but they are fragile, and they're likely to pick up noise you won't want. They're also expensive, typically $300 and more. So if you're setting up a professional recording studio and you know what you'd use a microphone like that for, stock up on them. Otherwise, stick with a condenser, electret, or dynamic microphone. Next, you're going to need a sound editor, and it has to be able to create an MP3 file. Not all of them do. Prices for sound editors range from free to several hundred dollars. I use an earlier version of Sony's SoundForge. It's version 7. The current version is 8. This is a $300 application, but Sony offers a slimmed-down entry version called SoundForge Audio Studio. It's about $70, and it has everything you need for podcasting. Alternatively, you might like the open-source Audacity. It is free. Interface is considerably more primitive than what you'll find in the professional programs. And if you didn't hear, I had quotation marks around the word professional. Depending on the application, you may have to obtain a plug-in that will allow it to create the MP3 files you'll make. And you have some choices on how to make the MP3 file. Mono or stereo? Well, unless you need stereo, I would prefer mono because it keeps the file size smaller. That means it'll download faster. Also, you want to look at the bit rate. You can go from 8 kilobits per second at 11 kilohertz. That'll give you a small file. All the way up to 128 kilobits at 44 kilohertz. That's going to give you a large file. The larger files sound better, but they take more space on the server, and they require longer to download. I have been using 48 kilobits per second at 44 kilohertz, which provides better quality than any AM radio, but packs 20 minutes into about 7 megabytes. For this program, I'm cutting the 48 kilobits to 32 kilobits, and the file size will be noticeably smaller. And finally, you need a quiet location. I usually find that the house is quiet on Sunday morning, and so is the neighborhood, so that's usually when I record Technology Corner. The next step after recording the file is uploading it. You have to upload actually two files, the MP3 that contains the audio, and an XML format file with an RSS extension, which RSS, by the way, stands for Real Simple Syndication. The RSS file contains a description of the podcast channel, 
and each podcast program, or as they call them, items, on the server. The XML file has to be edited in a plain text editor such as Notepad, and the XML standard is extremely strict. Fortunately, Apple's iTunes Store has all the information you need to write a good file. Apple will also act as your agent, in effect, to advertise and make available the podcast. You still have to obtain server space on your own and upload the files, but that need not cost more than 5 to $10 a month. On the website, and by the way, the website is www.techbiter.com. You'll find some links to Apple's podcasting questions, to a website that covers how to publish a podcast, and podcasting news's Make Your First Podcast. So maybe I'll be listening to you someday. Ah, fall. Time to head back to school, head back to college. A lot of students will be going, taking computers with them. Most of those computers are going to be small, portable machines, machines that can easily be stolen. But that's not all that can happen to a computer on a college campus. Viruses and worms can wipe out assignments. I had an opportunity to speak with Tom Olzak, author of the book Just Enough Security, Information Security for Business Managers. Olzak has more than 20 years of experience in programming, network engineering, and security. He's director of information security for a big national health care company in northern Ohio. Previously, he served 10 years in the U.S. Army military police with four years as an MP investigator. So this is a guy who knows his way around security. When I talked with him, I asked, first of all, What's the best operating system? In other words, should your computer be running Windows, Max OS X, or Linux? It doesn't really matter at this point. The press has been really hard on Microsoft because uh, of all the hits they take on uh, on the viruses and other malware that are out there. But that's primarily because that's the biggest target. Uh, Macs have not been doing too well recently. Uh, there's been a lot of news about uh, viruses or vulnerabilities in the Macs. So it really doesn't matter what is purchased. It just what does matter is that they pay it some attention to securing those boxes and making sure that that uh, they have the right patches on them. Let's talk about securing the box. What do you do? What, uh, what needs to be done to make sure everything is uh, is going to be okay? When you're using it in your home, the, the first thing to do is make sure that the box is protected with antivirus. You shouldn't, no one should ever run a system that's connected to the internet without antivirus. The other thing to use is a firewall. There are a couple ways you can do that. First of all, if you've got broadband access like DSL or cable, they usually provide a firewall device that it connects right into their uh, broadband service. So that, if you plug that in and you use the defaults, that's usually enough to keep the bad, bad things off of your home network. If you don't have one of those devices, then the other thing you can do is get a personal firewall those are pretty inexpensive, and you load that right on the laptop. And what that'll do is it'll prevent things from getting in. And the other thing a firewall does is that if your machine does get infected for some reason, uh, a lot of malware likes to call home and connect to, a, to, the, to the attacker's server so that they can get information and start to control your machine. If you, if you have your firewall 
in place, it prevents your machine from calling back to the attacker system to give them that information. When kids are going off to college, a lot of times they're going to take with them a laptop computer versus a desktop simply because they're small and they're portable. That's great. Makes them handy for use around campus. You can carry them where you, where you need them. Also makes them pretty easy to steal. First of all, let's talk about campus networks. Campus networks are typically wide open. Uh, the campuses around here, at least, they don't provide much security at all. So the things that I talked about earlier um, don't really apply. What they need to do is make sure that they've got the firewall and antivirus uh, software set up on their laptop. Laptops uh, are pretty easy to break into. Uh, if you give the right software, you can get into any laptop, no matter what the password, within just a few minutes. The only way you can really protect sensitive information on those laptops is to encrypt either the entire hard drive or encrypt just those folders or directories where you keep your, your important information. Um, and the other thing is, don't ever let the laptop out of, your, out of your sight. Physical control of the laptop is probably the most important thing a person can do to ensure that their information does not get compromised. You go into some of the computer stores and you see uh, cables with locks on them. Any value to those? Uh, there are value, but if somebody really wants your laptop, or your PC, they're just going to cut the cable and take it. The most, again, the most important thing to do is to protect the data on the laptop. Security is about protecting the data, and it's done in layers. So, putting a cable on the laptop is a, is a physical layer of control. Putting, you know, encrypting the data—that's another layer of control. We should never, should never rely on just one thing to protect the data on the laptop. Let's say that the average college student might actually listen to a parent. Uh, what are the top three cautions parents ought to give their students? First of all, uh, make sure you don't turn off the, the anti-firewall and antivirus because it's interfering with something that you're trying, some software that you're trying to download from the Internet. Uh, that's number one. Number two, make sure that when you visit websites, Make sure you're visiting websites that are known to be free of the uh, malicious software that's flying around on the Internet. And the other thing is just use some common sense. You know, if you're going to loan your laptop to somebody, make sure that you know them and that you know that they're not going to put anything crazy on the laptop. When you're not in your room, lock up the laptop. Lock it in, in a, a locker or whatever you have in your room, your desk. Just keep it secure. And it's just, it's just a matter of common sense, and really security is that. It's just common sense. Notebook computers are more fragile than their desktop counterparts. They have a lot of proprietary stuff in them, and they get carried around, bumped around a lot more. Is there anything a student should do in particular, or an adult for that matter, to uh, make sure that the machines continue to work for at least a few years? The one thing to do is to, when, you, when you're carrying it around, put it in the cases, the carrying cases that are either shipped with them or that you bought with the laptop. That's pretty much it. Uh, it's just the laptops that are being made today, I mean, at least I have two of them, and they, they take a lot of abuse. So they're a lot better than they used to be. That's Tom Olzak, author of the book Just Enough Security, Information Security for Business Managers. We've been talking with him about security at home and at school. If you're a business owner, you might find the book well worth your time. It's available online at Amazon and other bookstores, and your local bookstore can order it. In nerdly news, we have the great battery recall. Last week, I grumbled about Apple's lack of notification regarding its recall of 1.1 million Sony batteries for various notebook computers. This week, the notice is finally on the main page of Apple's website. Just barely. 
Dell has the notice of the recall in such a place that it's visible the instant you arrive at the site. Uh, well, Apple's is now there in tiny text near the bottom of the screen where you have to scroll down to see it. But at least it's there. And Apple has also this past week sent email messages to people who own computers with batteries that might be involved in the recall. And mine still isn't. The operating system war could be heating up. This could be interesting. In the time it has taken Microsoft to move its next generation operating system to release candidate one status, which is where it is now. That's Vista, by the way. Apple has upgraded the OS 10 operating system at least three times, maybe four, depending on how you want to look at it. And Apple's next version is in the wings. So we're going to have Vista and Leopard. I mentioned the upgrades to OS X. Some purists would say that versions 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, and 10.4 are just step upgrades, minor upgrades. But each of those did provide a substantially larger feature set than the one before. And there's a good reason that Apple doesn't want you to think of them as step upgrades, because step upgrades are usually included in the price of the operating system, yet Apple has charged more than $100 for each of the upgrades, except 10.1. And the upgrade from 10.0 to 10.1 simply converted Apple's proof of concept to a functional operating system, so they couldn't very well actually have charged for that. The next version of the operating system from Apple is called Leopard, and it's going to bring to the table some features that every Apple owner is going to want, and that might be enough to continue chipping away at Microsoft's market share. Now, that, make no mistake about that. Apple is not going to be the leader, ever. Apple will probably continue to putter around at sub-10% market share, and Apple's hometown newspaper reports about 5% market share in the U.S., or about 2% worldwide. That's not a problem for Apple, though. Consider the market share of Lamborghini compared to, oh, say, Toyota. Apple is content with its market share. The new version will come with Time Machine. It's an automatic backup program. You attach an external drive to Leopard, and the operating system will notice that it's there, and then ask if you want to back up everything on your computer. You still have to remember to take the backup drive somewhere, a safe distance from your computer, but this certainly simplifies a task that a lot of people know they should do, but don't. Then each subsequent time you plug that backup drive in, Time Machine will copy any files that have changed to the drive. Another winner in Leopard is called Spaces. This is something Windows users will recognize as multiple desktops. Specific applications can be open on alternate desktops, which are then swapped in and out. This is a feature that has been provided by some graphics subsystems on Windows machines for more than a decade. Apple's implementation sets it apart, though, because users can drag and drop applications from one space to another and drag and drop the actual spaces. Apple hasn't revealed whether these spaces can be defined so that they will always open when a specific user logs in, but because this is accomplished at the operating system level, I suspect that will happen, and we'll have to see what Vista shows in response to that. Drop me a note. Let me know where in the world you're listening. Let me know what you think of the format. The address, bill.blin at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R dot com. Check the website, too, techbiter.com. And thanks for listening. This has been Technology Corner for the week of September 3rd, 2006. I'm Bill Blinn.